listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing? I'm going to let that slide. That was not very enthusiastic. (laughs) But I want to... Many of you know um, my friend Tara here. I'm, she's a part of our church family, and uh, I wanted to go ahead and come on up, Tara. Tara's uh, uh, just, she's been a part of our congregation for over a year now, just a great friend, and she's a professor at uh, Crafton Hills and also Azusa Pacific, and she, um, she also works for a company called, uh, a nonprofit called um, Church Resource Ministries, and so it is my great honor to have her speak to you this morning, uh, this Palm Sunday. And so would you please make welcome, Tara. One year, I made a new friend. She was a beautiful friend. We were about the same age, early 20s, and her name was Doty. And Doty and I got to know each other through a mutual acquaintance. And we ended up spending a fair amount of time together because early 20s, figuring out life, figuring out God, figuring out ministry, figuring out surviving adulthood, all those things. We have a lot to talk about. So we spent a lot of time sharing stories, a lot, even more time sharing food, and sharing life. And she was a beautiful, beautiful person. She, she wore her lavender dress. It brought out the sparkle in her eyes. And she worked the soundboard at her church every week. I was there the day that she was baptized. And she had a gift for working with preschoolers. She loved working with these little people. You could just tell. It just radiated from her. And that was a gift I'm always in awe of. And so she was also a bit of a fragile person, sometimes prone to breaking bones after easy falls or sicknesses often. And... We weren't prepared for the day that she stayed a little too late at her friend's house, um, came home to her home in a slum of the outskirts of Nairobi, Kenya. Um, She came home a little too late at night. It was a little too dark. And she met some people. We never found out who. But it took three days before they found her body. There's something about death that makes you think about life, that makes you think about what it means to be human, what it means to be fragile. Uh, Today, we are going to be talking about heaven and hell and sin and humanity. Nothing major, right? (laughs) So... First off, what does it mean to be human? 
Uh, I am a cultural anthropology professor, which means I think about what it means to be human all the time. That's what I do. I probably overthink about it. And what I love is that in the incredible diversity of humanity, you can see the beautiful fingerprints of God. Because in each people group, each person, you get to see a little different shade and color and rivet. And in that, I see a reflection of the divinity of our God and the complexity and his, his creative capacity. And that's not an accident because when God made people, he intentionally made them in his image. All of us, every single people group that has ever lived, from the Yanomamo to the Trobrian Islanders to the Tiwi to the Irish travelers to us, every people group that has ever lived is a different reflection that shows more of the character of God. We can see through looking at humanity and through looking at what the Bible tells us about God's heart for people is that we are created in the image and the likeness of God. Now, in Genesis 127, where God made people, he said, the Bible says that God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. All of us reflect God's image and his likeness. What does that mean, right? That is a lot to digest, and we don't have time to go into all the possible meanings for that, but one uh, possible meaning that I want to dive into comes from one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. And in The Problem of Pain, no, sorry, in The Grief Observed, where he is reflecting on the death of his wife, he is reflecting on the human condition. What does it mean to be human? And he looks at it and sits, sees people as being a terrible oxymoron. And he thinks that they're a terrible oxymoron because they're a spiritual animal. How do those two exist together? By animal, what does that mean? It means we're flesh and blood. We live, we die. We're born, we grow old. We bruise easily, right? We are able to taste and touch and feel. We are part of the physical world. We have instincts and desires. We eat, we get hungry, we get cold. That's part of being human, is this sense of our own mortality, the sense of our own interconnectedness with the physical world, the material world around us. But we're not just animals. There's more to us than that. We are also spiritual creatures. And this is a distinctive that is uniquely human. Because if you look at all of the animal kingdom, it's only people who have this intrinsic drive for spiritual experience. Now, in anthropology, we talk about the belief in the human soul which sometimes people will say it's spirit, sometimes soul and spirit are different. Talking about the human soul, it can be defined as the non-corporal spiritual component of an individual, meaning the spiritual part of us, the invisible part of us, the part of us that is eternal, the part of us that makes us us. And 
As far as anthropologists know, there is no people group or no culture that doesn't have some kind of soul-like concept. It's a cross-cultural universal that all cultures have a belief that the soul survives the death of the body, at least for some time. Now, they may have a lot of debates over how many souls, how you get a soul, and all those kinds of things, but the fact that there is this belief that there's a part of the human condition that is spiritual, that has an eternal component or a component that survives after death, a component that is not purely physical, reflects on how God made us because that's how he made us. He made us to be both physical and spiritual. Not only that, but he's also hardwired us for a, super, for a relationship with the supernatural. This is another human distinction. Religion and ritual and belief are found in every culture that has ever been found for the most part, okay? There are, whenever something is found cross-cultural, it usually means it's hardwired biologically into us and not just something we've grown up with and learned from our environment. And so when you see that you have this much belief and need for and desire for supernatural experience, that's something that is built into our DNA of what it means to be human. And we have this fascinating tension between these parts of us. We know that we have this part of us that's eternal, that's supposed to be immortal and last forever, and yet we die. We have this desire to be in contact with divinity, to be, have experience of the divine world, of the world that is beyond our understanding, and yet we're trapped in our physical bodies and we're so human, and we have both at us, inside of us, at the same time. And even more, we know that we want to do good things, and yet we still do bad things. We know that we were more made for more than this life can give us, and yet we want to be satisfied where we are. And it is, it feels like a terrible oxymoron. Uh, 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote that a tree has no sense of its misery. It is true that to know we are miserable is also to be great. Thus, all the miseries of man prove his grandeur. They are the miseries of a dignified personage, the miseries of a dethroned monarch. He, he's pointing out this idea that we are more than anything you see in the natural world, more than, an animal, more than a tree, because an animal, like a beaver doesn't know that there's more to live for than eating bark and building a dam, okay? A tree doesn't know that there's more to live for than being a tree. But people, we can live our entire lives and still want more. We still have this hunger, this insatiable thirst for more, and it's because we were made for more. And that thirst, that desire, that insatiable Desire for more than what we have is, an, like one author describes it, as a pulley that's meant to lead us back towards God because this earth is not all that we are made for. It's, it reminds me of a time when I was uh, in my early 20s and I was wandering around Paris with a friend on New Year's Eve. And we ended up at this, uh, this church service where they were having a New Year's Eve party. 
and all a bunch of Parisians, and they, it was like 8 o'clock at night, and I was really hungry. It had been a long day of a lot of wandering around. And so, and, you know, it's, they're all speaking in French, and my French is terrible, so I had no idea what's going on. And so they bring out these delicious rolls of French bread, glorious French bread. And they also brought out some foie gras, which was less glorious, if you've ever tried fattened duck liver. Um, but I was so hungry, and I was like, okay, I just need to eat. And this looks like all we got, I'm gonna eat. And so I stuffed myself on French bread. Now French bread is good, but it's really not a meal. I mean, you can only, you can eat so much of it, but it just doesn't replace having a full meal. To my dismay, I found that it wasn't meant to be the meal, it was the appetizer. It was the first course. And then they brought out another course, and another course, and another course, and another course of glorious handmade French cuisine. And I was kicking myself, going, why did I waste my stomach space on so much bread? It's because I was trying to satisfy myself with the appetizer when the main course was yet to come. And that's what we like to do so often as human beings, as we try to satisfy ourselves with our lives on Earth, to be able to find our meaning and our purpose and our existence in the material things around us, when this, was, this is only the appetizer. The real purpose and destiny is yet to come. We are made for the eternal existence. This is meant to whet our appetites. And we were made for so much more. We were made for our eternal existence, which is what we call heaven. Now, heaven we can define as where God lives. Okay? It's the place where his kingdom is established, where every de- everybody does things his way. It's, he's the king. Things are done the way that he wants, and we have this... He has his presence always and completely there. Uh, in Revelations 21, 3b, uh, talking about heaven, um, it's described as, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's what we were designed for. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, we... People, Adam and Eve walked in undisturbed fellowship with God in the garden. Back, now when we go back into heaven in the future, that undisturbed fellowship with the Father is once again restored. It's that we have perfect intimacy with the Father. And that's what we were made for. It's what we were designed for. Um, but how do we grasp our head around heaven? It's there's so many pictures that come to mind, uh, people that have tried to describe it. Uh, my favorite comes from um, The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis, and he described it in this way. He said, in all the, you notice every time the Bible talks about heaven, it goes into a lot of symbolism and inter- imagery. And sometimes you get kind of lost in it. He described it in this way. This is George. We'll give George a mohawk, just because we can. Sorry, George, you didn't have a full head. There we go. Here is George. Now, we can see George, right? If I came to George and tried to describe him, what a tree looks like, is he going to understand? 
his concept of a tree is going to look like this. Or maybe if he's from the Caribbean, it'll look more like a palm tree. Okay, whatever his conception of a tree is. All right. However, if I'm thinking of a tree, I'm not thinking of it two-dimensional. I'm thinking of a tree that I can put my arms around, that I can climb, that I can smell, that I can experience. And trying to describe to two-dimensional George what the three-dimensional world looks like, I'm going to be employing a lot of symbolism because he has no idea. He can get a faint shadow, the outline, the merest um, dim reflection of what I'm talking about, but he doesn't have the capacity to put his arms around that tree. Everything in his world is two-dimensional. And so as we try to look at what the Bible teaches about heaven, we have to understand that we are still two-dimensional. And it's not until we're three-dimensional creatures that we can really grasp the height and the depth and the richness of eternity and what that eternity of undisturbed fellowship with God is going to look like. Now, brings us to why we don't have undisturbed fellowship with God now. Unfortunately, as human beings, we don't always like to do what God says. That is called sin. Sin is, can, one of the most common definitions of sin we see in the Bible is missing the mark. Kind of pretty much the same as, you know, if you're out target shooting, you want to get a bullseye, you miss, you miss the mark, right? So, missing the mark can also be looked at in this way. Back to our target analogy. All right? If here's my target... When God made us, he made us for him to be in the center and to us have everything about us revolving around him, okay? You can also use this with like the analogy of like, a, you know, the sun and the planets. God is the sun, we are the planets. Everything in our lives is meant to rotate around God. What happened is Adam and Eve made a bad decision. In Genesis 3, 5, during the fall of man, we talked about this a little bit last week when Brian Bell was speaking, but God had told them, there's one rule, just don't break that rule. So what did Adam and Eve do? They broke it. Uh, in Genesis 3, 5, the, um, the serpent, talking to Eve, trying to convince her to do what she was told not to do, gives her the reasons why she should do it. And he says... For God knows that when you eat of it, or the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What the serpent was tempting Eve to do, and what she thought was, sounded like a great idea, was to become like God. Instead of keeping God in the center, we put ourselves in the center and then expect everything else to rotate around us. We've changed our target. We've missed the mark. We've changed the way that the galaxies are supposed to be rotating around in the universe. And because of that, we can't live our lives the way that we were made to, because we are not made to be like that. And 
this brought sin into our lives as now all of a sudden I'm trying to rotate everything in the world around myself instead of around what it was, it was made to rotate around, which was God. And this impacts every single part of creation. When Adam and Eve sinned, it didn't just impact them. It impacted all their kids. It impacted the entire creation. It impacted individuals and societies and nations. It caused death on a physical level. It brought death on a spiritual level. It brought death to relationships or social death. All parts of the world that we live in are, as Romans 8 talks about, in bondage to decay and waiting for their liberation. And we don't even have a choice. We're born sinful. We have this uh, natural desire within us to do what is for our own best interest. What's we're, C.S. Lewis, Lewis calls us, we're born bent, or we're rebels that need to lay down our arms. We want to be our own gods. Romans 3.23 talks about that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no exception. Everybody has an attitude, in thought, in heart, wanted to make themselves their own God or something else, their own God, where they no longer have God as the center of the universe, but they put something else there in the middle. And uh, C.S. Lewis describes this, when he's looking at this fall of man, he talks about how they, or Adam and Eve, wanted to say, wanted as we, I'm sorry, talking. They wanted, as we say, to call their souls their own. But that means to live a lie, for our souls are not, in fact, our own. They wanted some corner of the universe of which they could say to God, this is our business, not yours. But there is no such corner. They wanted to be nouns, but they were and eternally must be mere adjectives. We have to remember who the center is. The this reminds me a lot of my relationship with my child at the moment. I have a three-year-old. He's always teaching me about the sinful nature of man. And <laughs> if I ever wanted to hope that we could be born perfect, I am constantly corrected. So lately, he's been taking to sitting in his car seat and telling me how to drive. Now, I'm not even sure how much of the road he can see from his position in the, start, in, the, in the car seat, but he'll sit there and tell me, Mommy, you need to turn here. Mommy, you need to stop. Mommy, you need to go. Mommy, what are you doing? <laughs> now, he's three. Does he know how to drive a car? No, imagine what would happen if I listened to him. It'd be a disaster. But how many times do I do that to God? <laughs> Where I tell God, I know better than you do. I should be driving. I should be telling you where to go. Where this, you know, the direction that you should be, God, you're doing it wrong. And that's that same sinful human nature where instead of saying, okay, God, you are king and I am not, I say, I am king, I'm driving this car, even though I don't have a driver's license. <laughs> and so the challenge with dealing with sin is recognizing how we are not meant to be God. It's God. We've got to put him back in the center or else everything else is going to be flying out of control 
like my three-year-old driving. Now, what are the implications of us sinning? Well, because we sin, we put ourselves in the center of the universe and we say we want everything according to our kingdom, our rule. We alienate ourselves from God. We can call that uh, hell. Hell is simply separation from God. It's a place of separation and of punishment because as we do what we were told not to do, we can't have that same relationship with God because he is the king. He, he is the one who knows us inside and out. And if we're continually rebelling against him, we can't be in that same undisturbed relationship with him. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9 says that he, uh, meaning, um, he, meaning God, will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. That is our essence of what we mean when we talk about hell. It's that people are shut out from the presence of God. If heaven is undisturbed, perfect fellowship with God, hell is the opposite. We're cut out from his presence. And it's reserved for those people who don't want to know God, don't, would rather not. As people become, as people became sinful, they also found that they didn't like to be reminded that they were sinful. Because if you're the center of the universe, you don't want anybody around telling you that you're not. <laughs> and so we have this natural inclination to feel uncomfortable about anybody else telling us that we're doing things wrong. <laughs> and in, in 2 Corinthians, God kind of, or, uh, Paul talks about, you know, to one set of people, we Christians smell like the smell of death, and to the other, we're the smell of life. It's that same kind of idea that those that are living one way don't necessarily want to be reminded that there's another way to live. <laughs> um, and it reminds me once again of my three-year-old who will really throw a temper tantrum when I try to change his diaper. He stinks. He's not pleasant to be around. But he doesn't want to change. He doesn't want to be reminded that he's stinky. Okay? He wants to keep doing whatever he's doing. But that's the same thing that we do with sin is we say, no, God, I don't want you to fix me. I'm fine with my smell. And God's like, no, I'm not. And the people around you aren't. You're making everybody, everything smelly. But we say, no, I'm good the way I am, right? And then we try to hang out with other people that are maybe just as smelly as us, so we can't tell that we're as smelly as they are. <laughs> <laughs> now, hell was not our natural place that we're designed for. Hell wasn't made for us. We were made for fellowship with God. Hell was designed for Satan and his minions who decided to rebel and put themselves in the place of God. And it's their punishment for refusing to follow the king. I mean, anytime that you have a king or someone in charge and people don't listen, you have to have some kind of repercussions, otherwise you kind of have chaos. And this is where we have hell, where the Satan and the, the demonic realm chose to rebel, and so they are reserved for punishment, which is absolute separation from God, because they don't want to be with God anyway. But when we as human beings choose that we also don't want to be with God, 
then we have to go to the same place, which is separation from where we were made for, what we're designed for. It's a choice. We choose it based on our own decisions, based on our own desire to set up our own small kingdoms where we can be our own gods and be the center of the universe and not have anybody remind us that somebody else should be the center of the universe. Uh, C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain described hell in this way. He said, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful. They are rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. Just as the blessed, forever submitting to obedience, become through all eternity more and more free. We choose to be in relationship with God or to run away from him. And he's not going to force us. We choose heaven or hell. Based on our lives, how, and if we want to be changed by God, if we want to be living in his light, if we want to let his presence fill us, and if we want to be in fellowship with him, which we can go into, what is heaven? What, do, what can we know about heaven? Um, biblically, if we look throughout the scriptures, we can see that heaven is a place prepared for us, uh, what we were made for, designed for. It's our home. When we're in heaven, we're going to have unlimited physical b- properties. We're going to be like Jesus. We're going to have new bodies. We're going to have, it's going to be a wonderful experience with a new environment, a new experience of God's presence on a deeper level than we've ever had before. We'll have new emotions, and there'll be no more death or pain or dying. But it's based on our own choice and desires. Do we want to love God more than we love ourselves? Or do we want to love ourselves more than we love God? Will we choose to surrender to the king and let him be king? Or will we decide that we like our own kingdoms better? And our choice starts now. I'm always entertained when I think about the idea of heaven as like salvation being a free ticket to heaven, so you can live your life however you want now because you're going to heaven, so who cares? Because I think that misses the point of understanding both heaven, hell, and sin. Because we can be saved and go to heaven and live our lives in terrible ways, but then we create our own little personal hell for everyone around us. (laughs) Like, if we're living our entire lives with us at the center, it doesn't just hurt us. It hurts everyone we're in relationship with. It hurts the world around us. And on the other hand, when we're choosing to intentionally center ourselves on God and let him change us and work through us, we can bring these little bits of heaven to our relationships. We see healing come on every level, from individual level to societal level, in all parts of our being as human beings. And that goes, it's not just, you know, a choice, you know, a dualistic choice where I'm either choosing heaven or hell. It's also a direction. What am I constantly choosing every day in what I'm doing? How am I creating this knowledge of the presence of God everywhere I go and in all of my decisions? Are people going to be able to look through me and see what I live for? 
And each day, the, the little choices that we make can have eternal consequences as we see God changing us from the inside out or we refuse to let him change us from the inside out. And our goal is to be able to have that taste of heaven. Revelations 21, 22 through 27 talks about, gives a symbolic word picture of heaven. It says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not uh, need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be um, no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That experience of having everything made right, everything centered as it should be, the place that we're designed for, our home. And this has implications for how we live our daily lives. Uh, back to my friend Doti I talked about in the beginning of the story, or beginning of the day. I was grieving over Doti, grieving over the impact that sin and human decision can make on the lives of so many. Grieving over the loss of my friend. And that I had a night a, a little while later where I dreamed about her. She came to me, and she didn't really say anything, but she was singing a song. She was singing, there's a Phil Wickham song called Heaven Song, and the chorus talks about a desire for heaven. And she was singing the chorus of the song, and she looked at me, and her eyes spoke more than words will ever speak. They were overflowing with joy and they had laughter in them. It was a laughter that she wasn't mocking my grief. It was more a laughter of wonder of, why are you crying? And when I woke up, I knew she was okay. Her pain was gone. Her human frailty had been replaced, and she was where she was made to be. And I didn't cry anymore because I was overwhelmed knowing that she was in undisturbed fellowship with her God and her creator. And that made everything somehow okay. And that's our challenge as spiritual animals. How do we deal with death and life and eternity? As Christians, we believe that we live in the light of heaven. All that we do should be directed towards and influenced by our belief about eternity, our belief of our direction being towards our heavenly home that we were made for. Our lives are not about this one, though they, our decisions in this life definitely matter, but the point is for the next life. And that's what makes this life so sweet and so worth living is because we can live walking knowing that, yes, we're not full yet, but we're going to be. We're, we don't have that undisturbed fellowship with God now, but we can have little tastes of it. 
Those little experiences, that sunset were so beautiful, that, that conversation, that, real, that time of worship, that, that place where you just felt the tangible presence of God and know that that is just there to whet your appetite. And someday it'll be so much better and deeper and greater and more fulfilling than anything we can possibly ask for or imagine. And in the light of that, we change the way that we live our lives because we want to be able to live in that sense of undisturbed communion and always possible. It changes our view of other people. It changes our view of, of sin and how we decide to make our decisions. And so my challenge for you today is how can you live in light of your eternal destiny? Thank you. podcast of the Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.